Jesus is building his church through the fallible, dependent labor of people like you and me. Last week, I proposed to you that this last section of Colossians is kind of a verbal portrait of Paul's ministry team. He set out something of a missionary letter through which Paul is introducing us to the people who are advancing Christ's mission in the ancient world and serving according to their gifts and according to the opportunities God gives. Now, for the purpose of offering uh, this list to you in a rather cohesive manner, I've given it some structure. And And I'm proposing that this list of Paul's ministry team can be broken down as follows. Now, I admit, before I even repeat it again, it is not elegant and it, uh, it may not always even fit, but I had to give it something. So here we go. Uh, two faithful messengers, two fearless ministers, four tireless co-workers, number four, one distinct support, one distant supporter, and number five, one fellow soldier. Now, the two faithful messengers whom we learned about last week were Tychicus, the chief com- communications officer of Paul's worldwide missionary endeavor. And the second one is Onesimus, who is the former runaway slave whom Paul sends back to Colossae to make things right with his master. The two fearless ministers were Aristarchus, Paul's fellow prisoner, and John Mark, who failed as a missionary but was later used by God to write the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Mark, which, by the way, may very well be the first of the four gospels written. Think about that. Mark the failure gets the privilege of writing the first gospels. The other gospel writers, the other two gospel writers, except John, quote extensively from Mark. Now this morning, then, I want to move to the third group of people in Paul's list. But before we do, let's stand together and read the text that we're going to expound. This is Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Follow along with me. I'm reading out of the ESV. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are and that, we may, that he may encourage your hearts. With him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom we have, you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a serv- is a servant of Jesus Christ, and he greets you, always struggling on your behalf, in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all, that, all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, 
The beloved physician greets you, and so does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea, and to Nympha, and the church that is in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. So we are on point number three this morning, and you'll see that in your bulletin, four tireless co-workers. The first of these men, verse 11, is known as Jesus called Justice, who I will henceforth call Jesus Justice. And clearly, this is not a reference to Jesus our Lord, but to a different Jesus whom we know very little about. In fact, so obscure is this dear brother that this week as I've been studying, I have repeatedly referred to him in my mind only as the invisible man. He doesn't show up anywhere except here. He's an enigma to church history. In point of fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where he's even mentioned. But let's take a couple of minutes and see if we can make some edifying observations. First of all, you should know that the name Jesus was a common one in Israel in the first century. This was not a name that was exclusively for our Lord. It is a name that means Yahweh saves. Isn't that appropriate? And no wonder the angel said to him, you shall call his name, what? Jesus. Jesus. Yahweh saves. Jesus is actually the Greek name for the Hebrew Joshua, or as they would pronounce it, Yeshua. The Jesus in this verse apparently was a Jew whose surname was Justice, a name that in itself means righteousness. Matthew Henry suggests that it's probable that this man changed his name from Jesus to Justice in honor of the name of his Redeemer. Well, of course, that is speculative on the part of Henry. But while we're unfamiliar with this brother's background, we know, we know that he was loved by Paul, who speaks of him as one whose very presence brought him comfort in his affliction. What does that mean exactly, that he brought comfort in Paul's affliction? Well, to offer comfort in the context of suffering means to ease one's grief, to ease one's trouble. It is to offer consolation or solace or relief or soothing to one who is experiencing affliction. Do you know what? Every week at Calvary Bible Church, there are people who are suffering and in need of someone to come and console them to minister to them, to serve them, to bring them comfort. The word comfort here is the word from which we get the medicinal term paragoric, which refers to a kind of medication that relieves physical pain and other uncomfortable symptoms of illness. 
In this case, however, the delivery of comfort came from the personal presence and the timely words of the invisible man, Jesus' justice. Now, it seems clear that Paul's comfort was at least in part owing to the fact that Jesus' justice was a fellow Jew, as was Aristarchus and was Mark. Remember, uh, Paul says so here in the text when he mentions these brothers. He says, these are the only brothers from the circumcision, which is just his way of saying these are the only Jewish people, the only Jewish men serving with me. Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Jew who lived far away from his homeland. He was surrounded by people whose background and culture was very different with what, from what he grew up with. He's surrounded immediately by Roman soldiers and Roman people. He is in Rome. He's in jail while he's writing this. And though he loved his Gentile brothers, there is just something special about receiving visitors from home when you find yourself in trouble in a foreign land. I suspect that Jesus' justice didn't spend very much time with Paul. The reason I think that is because when we turn to the letter of Philemon, which is next on the docket for preaching here, when we turn to the letter of Philemon, Paul offers almost an identical list of people that, that we're going through last week and this week. Almost an identical list. The only difference is that Jesus' justice has disappeared. He is no longer there. It may very well be that this faithful brother made the long journey to Rome simply to render comfort and encouragement to Paul on behalf of the church. You remember, that's exactly what the church in Philippi did. And after that, he may have just gotten gotten up and returned to the responsibilities he had back home, or maybe he was sent by Paul to another church. We don't know. Now, when we think of the ministry of comfort, we're not talking about a difficult, complicated endeavor. You don't have to attend seminary or become uh, highly educated in order to do this well. In fact, some of the people who are best at it have little to no education. All you need is to let your love for one another move into action. All you need to do is be on mission with the love that you have for one another. Love is not a feeling. It is giving what you have that they need because God wants you to, no matter how you feel. And consider, consider this, when you set out to comfort a suffering brother or sister, you're actually fulfilling the great goal of showing the world what God is like. God isn't our judge. He is our comforter. He is our source of mercy. And that's exactly, isn't it, what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Let me just read it for you. Here's Paul ex extolling and glorying in the majesty of God. And, and listen to how he describes him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? You can say it. Mercies, the Father of mercies and the God of all 
comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have received by being comforted by God. This is what God does. Now, obviously, it's not the only thing he does, but here in this text, Paul is saying, this is what God is like. If you do this for one another, you are, to that degree, like God. You were like God when you forgive. You were like God when you render comfort and mercy and kindness and help. You know that that's why you were created, right? To show the world what God is like. So get your antenna up. Be aware of the people around you. And render aid and comfort. Ministering comfort to those who struggle is enormously important. If indeed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the God of all comfort, then our ministry of comfort is the labor, listen carefully, of God himself. Listen, God is not going to come down and appear to a hurting person and give them comfort. No. He sends you. You are Jesus' hands and feet. You are the incarnation of Jesus Christ when you serve, when you love, when you render aid and comfort. And so here is the invisible man actually ministering to people in a, in a way that God says, you are ministering my ministry. You are rendering my comfort you are offering my mercy. What an incredible privilege. Listen, beloved, the main thing I want to emphasize about the example of Jesus' justice is that as far as we can tell, he was an ordinary, run-of-the-mill, faithful Christian, servant of the Lord, living on mission and making a powerful, albeit usually invisible, impact upon the world by ministering comfort. Now, we've got to be careful with this because there's a whole swath of professing Christians in this world who will say, that's the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel is the propositional message that the God who created you for himself and you rebelled against, he sent his only son to die for you so that you would not perish under his judgment, but have eternal life by his grace alone and not by works. Nobody gets saved by you rendering comfort, although that may help them soften to the message. But sooner or later, you have to speak. Remember, the Great Commission is not go into all the world and be nice. It's go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Jesus' justice was no spiritual celebrity. He wasn't Reverend Multigift. He didn't have a following. He wasn't pursuing recognition. He reminds me of the many faithful deacons at Calvary Bible Church who serve God's people week in and week out, day after day, rendering service and aid and comfort where it's needed simply because they love God and his people. I praise God for you who are serving in that way, the diaconate, 
of Calvary Bible Church. To be sure, the same thing could be said about many of you, men and women both, who seem to be always on the lookout for someone who's down, someone who's hurting, someone who's sick, someone who just needs a fellow Christian to show up at the door with a big smile and a cup of coffee and a timely scripture and soothe their troubled soul. You can do that. You can do that. So who is Jesus Justice? Well, I don't think I could answer that question any better than Warren Wiersbe does when he says, he is simply a man who represents those faithful believers who serve God, but whose deeds are not announced for the world to know. He was a fellow worker with Paul and a comfort to Paul, and that is all we know about him. However, the Lord has kept a faithful record of this man's life and ministry and will one day reward him accordingly. Like Jesus' justice, all the members of Christ's church are called to be faithful, often invisible servants of the Lord who are known only by those who personally benefit from their ministry of comfort and encouragement. And let me just say for your, for your encouragement that by God's grace, Calvary Bible Church has come a long way in building that kind of culture, this kind of every member ministry culture. We are not merely reformed. We are, as our website says, lovingly reformed. We speak the truth in love. We minister to one another in love because that's the way God ministers to us. Beloved, the Lord is building his church. You know how he's building his church? The Lord is building his church through fallible, dependent, the fallible, dependent labor of ordinary people like you and me. The second of Paul's tireless co-workers is named, in verse 12, Epaphras, or some of you like to say Epaphras, and I think that's silly, but... Uh, Epaphras. <laughs> now, this is the man who most likely planted the church in Colossae. You may remember that in chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul implies that he had never personally visit, visited Colossae. He talks about having never seen their faces. We know, however, that Paul spent two years teaching in what is commonly called the school of Tyrannus. When Paul visited the region of Ephesus, which was very close to both Hierapolis and uh, Colossae. When Paul visited that region, he temporarily changed his evangelistic strategy from walking all over the known world, planting churches as he could, in favor of a strategy of setting up schools where people could come, where especially men could come and sit at Paul's feet and learn the word of God. It is at least plausible to think that Epaphras was one of those men who attended the school of Tyrannus, who sat at the feet of Paul and got fired up about the gospel. Epaphras apparently heard the gospel from Paul, repented, and eventually became an effective evangelist and church planter. We know that he planted the church of Colossae because Paul speaks about it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 where he indicates that the believers in Colossae learned the gospel from him, from Epaphras. In fact, many believe that he, in fact, every commentator that I've read suggests that 
He not only planted the church of Colossae, but the one in Hierapolis and the one in Laodicea as well. In any case, it was through Epaphras that Paul learned about the struggles that the church of Colossae was facing. And in fact, no doubt, the reason that Paul wanted his letter uh, sent to the other churches was because they were struggling under the same problems that we've looked at in this, chat, in this uh, book of Colossae. Paul knew what they were encountering because of Epaphras. Now the chief characteristic of Epaphras in the mind of Paul here in this text is on display for us in verse 12. And here's what verse 12 says. If I can see it in my microscopic print. There it is. Epaphras, who is one of you, that means he's from Colossae. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras, who is one of you, is praying for you. He's praying for you. Epaphras was not just an evangelist. He was that. He was also a man of prayer. He had learned from Paul the very discipline that Paul called us to just a few weeks ago when in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, you remember that Paul exhorted us to pray steadfastly, watchfully, and with thanksgiving. And then he says, and pray for us, pray for us, that a door of opportunity would open, and that I may speak with clarity as I should speak. And notice what Epaphras prayed for. What did he pray? Well, his prayer sounds to me like a compressed version of the whole point of Paul's whole letter. Namely, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of Christ. He wants spiritual maturity. He wants you to see the glory and majesty and dominion of Christ over all things, to worship him, to delight in him, to grow in the knowledge, the experiential knowledge of him. And notice, Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians to encourage them to do the same thing. That's why I say I think he's, he's just compressing Paul's whole message here. He encourages us to grow in full maturity in Christ. We see this throughout Paul's letter. For example, this is, okay, so if, if you drifted off on me there, come on back. Now would be a good time. So he's talking about praying for the believer's maturity in Christ. So verses 9 and 10, here's what Paul writes. We have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I said this is experiential knowledge. That doesn't mean you don't also have to learn facts about God. But here the word is gnosko. And it means to know personally God has opened himself up to you so that you would know him. Eternal life is knowing God. God is the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 28, we admonish everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, what's the word? 
mature in Christ, or, or NAS says, complete in Christ. And then chapter 2, verse 2, Paul prays that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Epaphras prayed for this. Epaphras prayed for this. He prayed for an ever-increasing, ever-developing, ever-growing spiritual maturity in the fellow members of his church. And beloved, this, this should be instructive for us. It should be instructive for us. Do we pray? What do we pray for when we pray for one another? Lord, stop the liver quiver. Lord, heal his body. Lord, help him feel better. Lord, give him that job. Lord, send him that check. You know what Paul prayed for? You know what Epaphras prayed for? Lord, whatever it takes, grow them, grow them, grow them. Grow them deep in the knowledge of Christ. Grow them deep in their walk with Christ. Grow them deep in their love for Christ. Do you pray that way for your pastors? Can I just give you a hint? Your pastors need you to pray this for them. We need you to pray for us. And can I just say again, prayer rooms down the hall, 8.15 or 8 o'clock, 8.15, something like that on Sunday mornings, it ought to be maxed out. There were seven people in there this morning, and it was an improvement. We're moving in the right direction. Come early. Come to pray. Do you know what the, 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 the early Christians did mostly? They met in homes for prayer. They prayed. You know why we don't pray? Because the things we're concerned about, we can buy. The things we ought to be concerned about only come through prayer. Do you pray for your pastors in this way? Do you pray that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom? Listen, this church needs for the pastors to know what God's will is for this church and to be led by that. In your small group, do you pray that the brothers and sisters you fellowship with each week would reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ? This is how Epaphras prayed. No wonder he planted three churches. He's always praying. This is where in, in the King James, I think it says, he, he was wrestling in prayer which is kind of a comical thing when you think about it. And Paul commanded him, Paul commended him for it. And the implication is, Paul's writing this, the implication is we should be praying like this. And once again, you don't have to be a super Christian to pray like this. Epaphras was a normal, everyday Christian seeking to be faithful to the Lord. And, and you might say, but wasn't, wasn't Epaphras a church planter? I mean... Well, the answer is yes, but you know what? We have two church planters who've been sent out from our church, and I know them really, really well. And I got to tell you, they're normal, ordinary, sometimes downright goofy young men who are being used by God 
in extraordinary ways. Two faithful men. Brent Osterberg, Keith Christensen. You know what? You're far more like them than you are like Jesus. You're far more like them. We have, we have to remember this, beloved. Here's what Epaphras was known for. You know what it was? Not being multi-gifted, but he says in verse 13, hard work, hard work. You know what that means? Let me just give that a different term. He was on mission. He's working for the church, working for the, for the, the beloved in the local church. And so you see, my friends, once again, the Lord is building the church through the fallible, dependent labor of ordinary people like you and me. What are you, what are you doing for God? Now, the third tireless co-worker is a man we're all familiar with, and his name is Luke. I love Luke. Uh, I, 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 I could have probably done a whole biographical this morning on Luke, but I'll refrain. Paul refers to him here in verse 14 as Luke, the beloved physician. The beloved physician. And you know, Paul often uses the word beloved, agapetas, Normally, when he uses that word, he's talking about congregations whom he loves, like Ephesus. I'm sorry, like, uh, what am I saying? Philippians, the church of Philippi. He also uses it for fellow gospel workers who are especially dear to him. And he uses it for Timothy and Tychicus and Epaphras, Onesimus and Philemon. And now he's using it for Luke. These are his dear friends. And as I've said last week, many believe that Luke was Paul's closest friend. Colossians 4.14 affirms Luke was a physician. That he was a doctor indicates that he was a man of some learning and training. Very similar to Paul. He was probably a Gentile trained in the Greco-Roman arts, arts of healing. He's also thought to have been rather wealthy. There were wealthy people who surrounded Jesus and surrounded the apostles. But then again, they were too invisible, mostly. And a lot of them were women who served them, served the Lord, and then served his apostles. As Paul was committed to providing for himself through tent-making, he was a tent-making missionary, Luke also may have continued to work as a physician as he traveled with Paul, thereby providing for his own needs. He most certainly would have provided medical care for Paul and his team. Paul's many encounters with hostile mobs would have required the attention of a, of a doctor, and it turns out his best friend is a doctor. And he no doubt had to use what he knew, which compared to what we know today, in the medical community, although the COVID has caused us to question how much people know, but, um, but certainly with what he had, you know he had to be applying it all the time with the Apostle Paul. In any case, it's important to note that Luke was a Gentile Christian. We know he was a Gentile because right here in the text, Paul says, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. That leaves Luke out. He's not one of the men of the circumcision. That is, he's not Jewish. And there's only one other option. He's, he's Gentile. 
And since Luke's name is absent from that list, we can be assured of that. Now, it's interesting to note that Paul in Philemon 24 refers to Luke as one of his co-workers. That's an interesting descriptor. This is a term that Paul uses primarily for the other key players in his mission who are gospel ministers, gospel preachers. He uses it for Aquila and Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And it's no great stretch to assume that each of these men who's, who, were, who, were, who were ministering with Paul, away from Paul, in their respective churches were also gospel preachers as well. And so we shouldn't think of Luke merely as a missionary, somebody, a, a groupie, he's not just hanging out because something cool is happening, but rather he is a true gospel worker, a missionary, a gospel preacher in his own right. Luke was a vital asset to Paul's ministry and mission. Now, just for a, a, a moment, I want you to turn back to the text we read earlier uh, this morning for our scripture reading, and that is Second, uh, I'm sorry, First Corinthians chapter two, First Corinthians chapter two, and in verse 27 and 28, here's what we read. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 27. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, this is exactly the message that I'm preaching through the identities of, of these men, that God didn't choose. Mostly, mostly he chose normal people who weren't in the upper echelons of society to do his work. Generally speaking, the people of God, the people that God uses in the world to fulfill his mission of redemption, these are not the wise and the noble and the brilliant and the educated people of the world. Normally, he uses people like us, the nobodies, the lower, from the lower echelons of society. This, beloved, is the rule. And I want you to take comfort in that rule like I do. But, even as Paul says here, there are exceptions. He doesn't say, he doesn't choose, he doesn't, hasn't called any of those kinds of people, just not very many. And I think Luke is one of those exceptions. I think Paul was one of those exceptions. He was a genuine scholar, this Luke, this physician. He was not only a physician, but a historian, a geographer, a theologian, probably an orator who could effectively proclaim the gospel. This was a brilliant man. This is a brilliant man. Like Paul himself, he was truly amazing. Just in his mental capacities and stamina and determination. But he is, um, he breaks the rule. In fact, though we rightly consider Paul, think about this, 
though we rightly consider Paul a prolific biblical author, Luke, you ready for this? Okay, all eyes up here for a minute because you need to hear this. Paul was a, a, a prolific author. He wrote 13 of the inspired documents in the Bible, in the New Testament. Luke, however, you ready? Luke contributed more than Paul. I did the math on this. And my math is weak, so I checked it again and again and again, and this is what I came up with. While Paul wrote 2,033 verses of the New Testament, Luke actually wrote 2,158. The corpus of Luke's writings exceeded that of Paul's by 155 verses. 155 verses is larger than some of Paul's whole letters. This was an amazing man. He was amazingly brilliant. In many cases, he was Paul's intellectual equal. No wonder they were close friends. I mean, if I, if I were close to Paul and, and I came up to him, he'd go, what? <laughs> but with Luke, Luke, what interesting thought do you have for me today? Brilliant. Reality is God sometimes uses people with extraordinary gifts the church has always had its Luthers and Calvins and Whitfields and Spurgeons and Edwardses. Just this week, just yesterday, we learned that another one of our great scholars has died, J. Adams. If you get an opportunity to read his obituary, what an amazing guy. When he came to Christ, he, as a teenager, he wanted to know where he can study the Bible. And so they sent him to a school in Philadelphia. They had to make a, a special dispensation to get him in at 15 years of age. And when he finished his undergraduate and, and, and graduate degree, he finished them and was graduated on the same day. This man, like Paul, like Luther, stood up against the whole church and said, when it comes to pastoral ministry, you're doing it wrong. It is unbiblical, and I stand against it. And he was mocked for it, very much like all these other great men. And out of it came this ministry, originally CCEF, and then NANC, and the National Association of Neuthetic Counseling, and then now ACBC, which is near and dear to our hearts. The reality is God always has men like this. We praise God for men like this. But for the most part, Jesus builds his church through the fallible, dependent work of ordinary people like you and me. And that brings us to the fourth tireless worker. The fourth tireless worker is a man by the name of Demas. Once again, we don't know much about Demas. This text and others seem to indicate Demas was counted among Paul's brothers who served with Paul and at some level was used by God to advance the gospel across the known world, which today is essentially Turkey, where Paul did most of his ministry. He's mentioned here, but not only here, he's mentioned also, remember I told you about that list, that, that duplicate list that shows up in the book of Philemon. Well, guess who's on the list? Demas, one of Paul's faithful brothers. 
one of his faithful servants. There was always much to be done. And for now, anyway, Paul was not able to travel, and so Demas would have played an important role in Paul's ministry. Anybody attached to him would have had an important role. They had to keep moving. The gospel needed to keep advancing in places other than the jail at Rome, where it was advancing. Nevertheless, for all the faithful saints who followed the Lord or followed Paul, there would always be those who eventually turned their backs on the work and on the Lord. It's a heartbreaking text, 2 Timothy, where Paul is in his final jail cell. You probably heard John MacArthur say whenever... whenever um, the Apostle Paul showed up to a new town. He didn't ask where is the, the best hotel nearby, but uh, where's the nearest jail, because he knew he'd be spending all his time there. So here he was in Rome. Uh, they let, let him loose after he um, wrote Colossians and Ephesians. He ministered for some time, but he was arrested again, put in jail. Here he is in his final jail before his execution, and he writes to Timothy, his son in the Lord, and he says to Timothy, would you do your best to come to me soon? You know, you know why he wants Timothy to come? He tells us, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. In Paul's time of need. Maybe he was afraid of getting arrested. Maybe... Things were getting too dicey. Maybe he knew that Paul's end was coming and he didn't want it to be his own. In the church, the most heartbreaking things that can ever happen is to discover that a key player in the ministry was actually a fraud, a deserter. No doubt it was with a broken heart that the Apostle John explains in 1 John 2.19 that they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain they are not of us. They were outsiders after all, pretending to belong to Christ. This too is a common experience of those who faithfully strive with others in tireless ministry there will always be people who fall away. There will always be husbands who abandon their homes. There will always be wives who run off with other men. There will always be pastors who, even in the past two weeks, uh, very well known, I wouldn't call him a pastor, but a religious leader, church leader, had to step down. There will always be those there will always be pseudo-ministers of the word who on the inside are, are not at all as they present themselves on the outside. They are pretenders. They're hypocrites. They're frauds. And I suspect, even in a church as small as ours, with these two rooms, three rooms of people now, and the internet, I suspect there's someone who's hearing my voice right now, and you know it's true about you. 
There's hope for you. Like there was for Peter, there's hope for you. Repent. Believe. You say, he'll never forgive me. (laughs) He's God. He's God. And he has promised. He will forgive you. Repent and believe. Fly to him. Don't be a fraud. Don't lie to yourself any longer. Well, these are the four tireless co-workers of Paul. And that brings us to number four, one distant supporter. Look at verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church at her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church in Laodicea and say that you also read the letter from Laodicea. It's interesting, isn't it? Kind of a behind-the-scenes look. This whole, this whole thing here at the end is kind of a behind-the-scenes look of what Paul's ministry was like. It's amazing to me. I was telling Jason this week. It's, it's amazing how they had these single documents, and they would pass them around. And, and I suspect that the churches would often just copy them right there. It's amazing to me that they have survived 2,000 years. Some of the greatest pieces of literature that the world accepts without without being critical um, were written hundreds and hundreds of years, 500 years or more after the events actually took place. And here are these letters were written before the death of Paul, and they survive. It's a tribute to God's providence, God's preservation of Scripture. But the person I want you to notice is Nympha. Nympha and the church that meets in her house. It's interesting to me. Because in Jerusalem, there's a woman named Mary. She was the mother of John Mark. And there's a church that met at her house. Once again, we don't know much about this dear lady. What we do know is that this was a woman given to hospitality. And I suppose the highest level of hospitality is letting the whole church meet at your house. And some of your small groups look like the whole church is meeting at your house. In the first century, you get the distinct impression that they met not weekly, but daily. In fact, the text says it every day from house to house. But in the church of Laodicea, They never had to worry about where they would ever have to meet. Nympha's door was always open to the church. Even to this day, one of the most needed ministries in the church is the ministry of hospitality. And this ministry, like so many of the most vital ministries of the church, are hosted and organized by ordinary people, mostly women, living on mission for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Ladies, don't let anyone even hint to you. If you hear it, don't pay any attention to it that somehow your ministry in your home, ministering to your children in your home, ministering to the saints in your home, having small group in your home, that is not a second-rate ministry. That is top tier. Uh, I, I met with new, new people 
uh, for the Sunday school hour, people who are interested in becoming a part of Calvary Bible Church, I assume. And uh, almost to the family, they said, one of the things that drew us here and has kept us here is meeting in the homes where we get to see real people and we see their love, their love for Christ and their love for one another, and we want that. You know what? That would be impossible. That would be impossible in my home if, if I was <laughs> doing the cooking and the cleaning and the whatever. It just never happened. But it's huge what happens. The conversations that take place. Redemptive conversation, speaking truth in love. Some people end up following Jesus because of that. And by the way, in the ministry of Jesus and that of Paul, much of the financial and practical support came from generous women like Phoebe, like Lydia, like Nympha, and others like Mary. And apart from their faithful service, the gospel would likely not have made the progress that it was making in those early years. And so again, I say, Jesus is building his church through the fallible, dependent labor of ordinary people like you and me. And that gets us to the last one here, the one fellow soldier. Verse 17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And Paul is simply telling Archippus that his ministry is his God-given mission. So here we are, back again, being exhorted to live on mission. Just as a soldier in an army would be given a mission, so you, Archippus, you have been given a mission. Fulfill it. Fulfill it. Fulfill your duty. This is a good place to end the message, really. You see, we have all been drafted into the Lord's army. We know that we are to live on mission for the glory of Jesus. And I suspect, like Archippus, you have good intentions to do that. You have good intentions. I think Archippus had good intentions. But perhaps... It's time for you to press through those good intentions and actually attack, fulfill, prosecute the ministry the Lord has given you. What if I don't know what my ministry is? Um, can I just say, I can help you with that. I can help you with that. And not just me, but ask any of the other elders. If you're, if you're a woman, ask one of the one of the elder's wives, or any godly woman here. And, and we'll help you find a place where you can serve, from your home, in the church, wherever. Wherever you are, you exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's why we're here, beloved. That's why we're here. So if you don't know what God wants you to do, it's not that hard. We can give you work to do while you're figuring out what you're supposed to do. And in the end, you will love wherever God lands you. When I got saved, I remember Jack Wurtson saying to us, he said, gentlemen, just remember this. He, he just got done showing a uh, movie, not video, they didn't have that back then, but a reel-to-reel -reel movie of his, uh, his compadre in ministry, Harry Baalbeck, 
when Harry was in the Andes Mountains being shot at by na natives with bow and arrow as they're trying to escape in their stuck dugout canoe. At one point, there's a, a, a part of the story, a part of the video, the, the movie, where they know something is in Harry's head, and so they slice it open, and they pull out this worm that had, had somehow gotten in there. And uh, I don't know what that has to do with this book. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember after that, Jack Wurtson said, gentlemen, listen to me. The safest and happiest place in all the world you can be is right in the will of God. Serve him. Find a place to serve, work, labor. There's joy there. There's meaning there. There's purpose there. There's fulfillment there. And then the very last thing we read, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting. Now, implicit in that statement is that Paul is not writing this letter. He's writing the greeting at the end. And there are certain men who traveled with Paul. Tertius is one of them. And we know that because in one of Paul's letters, Tertius says, by the way, I, Tertius, also greet you in the Lord. Right? <laughs> so we know he was writing and Paul was dictating. And so we don't know who Paul was dictating to. It may have been one of the, the, the like Tychicus. It may, may have been Tychicus. But here's what Paul says. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. It very well could be the reason that he had somebody else write for him. This was the days before spectacles, before Ben Franklin invented them. Paul probably couldn't see well enough to write. And so he would just speak. And then at the end, in, in another one of his books, he says, I'm writing this in my own hand. See how big the letters are? Paul was, at least in terms of reading and writing, he was nearly blind. But here he is, faithfully serving. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful book. Short, only four chapters, but by it you exalt Christ. This is the most Christ-exalting New Testament book in the Bible, at least in terms of its Christocentrism. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us look to the majesty of Christ, the glory of Christ, the wonder of Christ, his love for us. Use it to motivate us now that he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of God's own Son. May the fruit that flows from that be the fruit of faith by which we live on mission, serving one another, comforting one another, instructing one another, and communicating the gospel to the lost, inviting them to repent and believe to their own eternal joy. May we live in the good of it, Lord, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.